Episode 4, Spontaneous Combustion is E for Everyone, 12-02-2011. Hey there, how's it going? I'm doing pretty well. It's been a busy week. I have a bunch of uh, class finals, uh, final projects over the next few weeks. I have a midterm next week, uh, three class projects due uh, next week sometime. Uh, the news this week's been kind of lackluster, though. Uh, not that exciting. One of the first interesting stories we have today is that uh, an iPhone exploded aboard a flight in Australia. Uh, it's pretty unusual for iPhones to explode. I, I do remember a few years ago that this uh, was allegedly a problem that it was mostly just rumors, and maybe just an isolated case, maybe something just once in a generation could happen in. Um, according to the picture I see here, the iPhone in question looks like it had exploded right over the battery. Now, I know nothing about battery technology, but I'm pretty sure that when exposed to great heat, batteries explode. So maybe this iPhone was abnormally hot and it just kind of exploded. I don't know. One of the other things about this is that uh, the 4S has had a bunch of problems in um, battery life. So, potentially, with this uh, problem in battery life, maybe some batteries would get unexpectedly hot. But, you know, even so, I don't expect an iPhone to, to explode or spontaneously combust or anything like that. And of course, I'm no expert, so I'm not going to be worried about it if I had an iPhone. If I had an iPhone, I I think this would be a fluke, and it wouldn't prevent me from owning one or using it regularly or anything. The only thing I might think about is getting a nice plastic case for the back, so that if it does explode, I won't have glass shards all over my hand. Now, on the upside of this, the uh, iPhone in question was collected by the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, and it is now a part of the investigation, which is great. So hopefully they'll figure that one out. Um, Matt could not join us today, so I'm also doing his stories, which are also great today. Uh, Sony and Hitachi are working on, allegedly, the next generation of iOS devices uh, screens. And uh, now, this story is from Apple Insider, and there's some things I agree and disagree with. Uh, first, uh, the LCD panel for the upcoming iPhone 5, potentially. It'll be a 4-inch. Uh, they're using some type of new screen. Uh, it, it's uh, some type of indium, gallium, and zinc panel. I, I don't believe, though, that it'll take as long as the iPad 4 for a major screen bump, because... It seems like that's what's necessary for the iPad 3 to be successful. What differentiating factor could there be? I, the only thing I can think of, really, is a new screen. There won't be a new form factor. The only way to get a new form factor is to make the screen better, and therefore different. Um, battery life could always be improved, but I just don't see that happening right now. And even if it is... You're not going to buy a new iPad to get more battery life. That doesn't seem like what normal people do. 
Uh, as for the iPhones, I don't think that two-drop shape is at all realistic. Uh, I do think, however, the uh, same kind of brushed style that the MacBook Pros and Airs are done in, that the iPhone 5 will be done in also. Uh, it's, it's a great texture. It's very, very sticky on your hands. Uh, not sticky, but it doesn't slide. It has enough friction to keep the hand in your hand, uh, the phone in your hand, and overall, it's really great. One of the other things, though, about this is that, it, of course, it's just a rumor. It's going to be manufactured by a new process, and that essentially just means laying glue down in a different order or something, you know, polishing glass, something. Who knows? Uh, but anyway, enough about that hardware for a minute. Um, so everybody knows about video games and how in the old days everybody thought video games and violence had some type of correlation. So if you did play Grand Theft Auto as a young child, you would be more likely to be a serial murderer and for some reason just rob cars left and right, just like in the game. Well, maybe that's true, but I don't think it is. Well, the same group that sets up the guidelines for uh, video games sold for consoles like the PS3, the Xbox 360, the Wii... You know the little E or the T or the M or the whatever letter they have in the corner that indicates the rating for the game? Like how safe it is for your child? Well, they're bringing that to uh, mobile apps, essentially. So somehow the system is very similar to the uh, current system. But there's a little problem. While AT&T, Microsoft, Sprint, T-Mobile... Uh, U.S. Cellular and Verizon are implementing, uh, or or at least considering adopting this type uh, type of app rating system. Apple and Google aren't. Now, tell me, go ahead. I, I want you to do this. What two companies own the majority of all app game markets? Oh yeah, Apple and Google. Apple, of course, has iOS and Angry Birds was born on iOS. It was fantastic. Apple doesn't have any incentive to do this. Um, Apple, I think Apple is pretty uh, well off with saying if you're under 18, you can handle all the content that's up to 18 in that adult marker, and then otherwise you just need to be 18 or over to buy it, I guess. I don't know any other reasoning. I mean, another thing that I think about Google is Google doesn't have an incentive to, to further fragment their store. Uh, app purchases on Google are already low. I'm sure Google knows that. I don't think they have any incentive to do anything else other than just sell as much as possible. And why, why, uh, why confuse either parents or children about what they can and cannot buy? Why do that? That doesn't sound like something they should do, especially when sales are so low already. Now, uh, the way these apps get rated is when they're submitted, uh, you know, they get up their approval, and then once the approval is, they can be submitted to other stores through a unique identification code. Um, so then they don't have to go through the review process again. So they can be in multiple stores with the same rating, of course. 
and then they can skip all of that overhead. Great, but it's just not going to work. Uh, I have this fundamental belief that once your child can read, once you can read, you are no longer bound by ratings. Once you can read on your own, and you don't really need anyone to hold your hand, per se, hey, uh, what's that word? Oh, what does that expression mean? You know, if you do this infrequently enough, and you feel like you can read a book all the way through, like like some science fiction novel, or maybe a hardcore mystery, okay, no, maybe not, uh, just something like a regular book. Or if you could read the Steve Jobs biography all the way through, or if you could read... Uh, Tom's Covenant all the way through, The Dark Tower all the way through. If you could read a book, a series like those, you could very easily ignore all writings because what you've read has exposed you far more. I, I find these ratings extremely arbitrary. Age does not correlate with uh, experience, expertise, or anything. So I like to think that uh, it should be different. And ESRB is not the way to go for this. So we'll have to see how this turns out in the market. Obviously, Apple and Google uh, at least are thinking something like this. So we have another Apple Insider story here from this week. uh, And it is about um, Matt's reoccurring theme of uh, hard drives and the massive flood that is essentially stopping all hard drive production and causing a hard drive shortage. This hard drive shortage is interesting because one wouldn't expect all hard drives to be produced in Thailand along the coast. You would expect some hard drives to be produced in other places, like somewhere else, China, I don't know. But about 14,000 factories have shut down with more than 600,000 people out of work. That's insane. 600,000. That's just not a number that's even comprehensible. I mean, I just don't know what you could possibly do. Well, these hard drives in particular are really specific. In fact, these hard drives are about Apple, and Apple is having a very difficult time with the iMacs that come with two terabyte drives, in fact, they are having a projected six to seven week estimate for wait time between shipping, ordering and shipping. So securing these drives potentially could be pretty difficult for a while. That's almost not a surprise since if every drive is produced there, then, well, I don't know. One of the things I wonder, though, is how uh, easy it would be to replace an iMac drive with a um, two, 2 terabyte drive yourself. Now these drives are SATA drives, but the mystery is if they are uh, regular SATA drives or if they're a special type of uh, like a notebook, laptop, like 2.5 inch drive, or if they're a special proprietary Mac style, or if they're even worse, some type of a soldered component onto a board. That would be bad. And of course, without doing that, it would be a lot harder to do this. It would be difficult to uh, replace if it's not easy uh, in this form of a you know just hot swap or open and replace kind of deal. Another thing that's kind of interesting about this is that all of the other Macs that have smaller drives are pretty much unaffected. 
So I think that's okay. And, but one thing that in this article quotes is uh, Team Cook, uh, Tim Cook. And uh, Cook admitted that Thailand supplies a significant portion of the total worldwide supply of hard drives. It's something I'm concerned about, Cook said. We do expect, I'm virtually certain, there will be an overall industry shortage of disk drives as a result of disaster. How it affects Apple, I am not sure. And that was a quote from Tim Cook. I don't know when, but one should pause for a moment and think about how Apple has changed in, what, two months. I don't think that if this happened three months ago, that Apple would have said anything like this. So Tim Cook is doing a different kind of style than what Steve Jobs is doing. He's saying things to the public. So maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, so we'll see. But I, I know for sure that something was bad. And uh, the moment I heard about him, the AT&T and T-Mobile merger. AT&T wanted to purchase T-Mobile. Uh, uh, of course, they couldn't because, well, let me just give you a little idea. AT&T uh, wrote some papers up stating their estimated costs. Uh, so one of their estimated costs was buying T-Mobile, of course, and they knew that cost because they negotiated it. And that was $39 billion or approximately $40 billion. Now they also estimated the cost of expanding their network to match the same amount of expansion as if they had purchased T-Mobile. That number? $4 billion. So, let me do the math for you. $4 billion to simply expand your own network to the same size, or to expand your network to the same size and wipe out a competitor for 10 times more. What do you think is a better deal? I think the wiping out competitors is a great deal. Oh, but there's one little thing. Government approval because of anti-trusting laws. Oh, those are so good. Do you remember how AT&T, American Telegraph and Telephone, about, I don't know, I'm not sure precisely, maybe 80 years ago, 90 years ago, they were this huge company and they kind of took over the United States. And then maybe uh, 60 years ago, they kind of were broken apart into baby bells. Do you know why? Because it was a monopoly. And my fear was that it would become a monopoly again. Uh, I don't know if, if, if most people are aware of this, but I believe it was Southwestern Bill. And Southwestern Bill was comprised of two, at least two other baby bells. And they kind of just reconglomerated. It's kind of scary. So, uh, this week, the FCC report came out. Now, AT&T, right before this happened, withdrew their uh, proposal to buy T-Mobile. They withdrew the application for government approval. Now, usually when this happens, the company in question will not release the report. But AT&T did this because they realized the FCC wasn't going to allow them to buy T-Mobile. So AT&T thought this would be a wise time to rethink their strategy for purchasing T-Mobile. So what did the FCC do to counter this? They released the report anyway. And of course, AT&T says this is unfair because AT&T couldn't intervene in the paper. They couldn't make corrections. They couldn't clarify some points. They couldn't make a counter-argument if necessary. 
And the FCC's essential response was that, well, you could have had this opportunity had you actually not bailed at the last minute and not had uh, recanted your proposal. Uh, so, again, it's it's this kind of absurdity from AT&T that really causes me a lot of grief in that it could be a great company, but you have to have some type of integrity, some standards, some type of uh, purpose that that actually makes sense. And buying a company just because you can't build your own infrastructure and that you want to wipe out an opponent, that doesn't work for me. You wipe out opponents through sheer perfection and just overall excellence. You do not wipe it out like, hey, uh, I'm going to buy you now because you're about to uh, go out of business. That doesn't work for me. Don't like that. Mm. Yeah. But, uh, you know, phones are one thing, but, you know, hacking is a completely different thing. So, you know, the phone market and that all that T-Mobile and AT&T merging laws, antitrust, anti-competitive... Yeah, that's one thing. But breaking laws through hacking, that's entirely different. And we have one of those stories this week for sure. And that is the United Nations Agency hacking attack. Well, uh, it appears that the United Nations Development Program was attacked and uh, indeed uh, cracked. Now, one of these servers from this group was attacked by Team Poison. I don't really know anything about this team. I'm not sure I heard the name before. But essentially, uh, the the data that was uh, obtained from the attack was um, uh, emails, I guess. Uh, yeah, it's not a big deal. Hmm... One of the things I find interesting about this is they mentioned Anonymous in this article. So, Team Poison recent, recently announced a joining forces with Anonymous on a new initiative dubbed Operation Robin Hood. Doesn't seem like this has anything to do with the article, but I think uh, Team Poison is trying to uh, get to the UN by attacking them in any, any method possible. The UN has a lot of trouble with this kind of stuff. Uh, you you can't get. I feel the UN kind of ignores the internet a lot. Uh, you know, having countries is great and all, but the people are kind of important too. I guess I don't know. This this story is kind of short. There's not much to go on here because it's just kind of vague. So moving along. So, you know, we've talked a lot about AT and T already. I know, and phones in general. It seems like that's all this news was in the week. But here we are again with Carrier IQ. You know, Carrier IQ is this little deal that hides in Android phones, in Blackberries, uh, even the iPhone. And it's not as if these companies, Google, uh, RAM, uh, or uh, Apple, put them there. No, no, no. Something far more nefarious. The carriers put this incredibly invasive software into your phone. Didn't you know what this incredibly invasive software does? Well, let me tell you. It essentially can track everything you do. How? Well, imagine you send in a text message. Normally those things can't be intercepted, although your phone company can read it if they want to because it's going to their systems. Um, 
but it sends those over plain text back to Carrier IQ. Uh, let's say you type in a password. Well, it can read those keystrokes and send them to Carrier IQ. Uh, let's say um, you uh, have an Android device and you uh, have a lock screen type of a key, like an opening key. Every time you touch that screen, they can track those positions. Pretty much any data that the phone can track and log is loggable by Carrier IQ and is and has been sent to Carrier IQ. Now this story has developed throughout the week and I haven't followed it too closely. It seems to have changed a lot. So initially it was found to have this and the guy who found it was uh, sued for what appeared to be uh, intellectual property violations and the Electronic Frontier Foundation stepped in to help defend him, and then uh, uh, Carrier IQ kind of relented and apologized and withdrew the claim. And then AT&T Sprint came out and uh, said they do not have the data that that was claimed that they had or could have, and that the data they do have is only used for performance concerns on their network so they can look at how the performance of certain phones affects the network. Um, T-Mobile uses Carrier Q2, but appears not to really use it for any personal data collection. Uh, Carrier Q spoke out and said that, no, no, we don't collect any of this. It's incapable of doing this. In that we totally ignore all other data except phone diagnostic information. Of course, of course they do. I mean, if you were a company, wouldn't you deny all that? I I totally would. So it's really weird. One of the things about Carrier IQ, and I just feel kind of concerned, uh, on the iPhone, you wouldn't expect Apple to relent and say that it would be okay for AT&T or Verizon to put this on their hardware. But Apple seemed to have, but you can disable it pretty easily doing the... uh, by tr- opting out or like, maybe never opting in to the uh, send diagnostics back to Apple uh, checkbox. Probably somewhere in general settings. I don't know. I'm not sure. But this type of opting in slash out behavior is really creepy because it reminds me of Facebook. You know, hey, uh, we're going to share everything unless you opt out. You know, well, that stuff should just be opt in or just not be there at all. I think that's usually one of the best solutions for this kind of stuff. So, I don't know. We'll see. Now, now there's one more thing I, I just had to mention. And, and this is uh, another one of those hacks. And it's kind of funny. Now, well, a couple years ago, I had a printer. And it melted. Uh, not literally melted, but it kind of started smoking one day. And it was a laser color printer. It was really nice. It was a Samsung. It was heavy, sturdy. You know, ink lasted. Uh, the toner lasted long. Uh, it was great. Just printed a little paper one day. And it just overheats. And stops working. And kind of makes them smell kind of uh, burnt. Well, what do you think happens then? Oh, we got rid of it. Well, this story is talking about printers that are open to a devastating hack attack. And this hack attack, no, I have no way to verify if this is true, but they're saying that HP laser print printers 
have some type of exploit in them such that they can make the printers overheat. Now, I, I just don't know how true this is. I, I don't think that it's possible for a printer to catch fire, as they say it is. I don't think it's that easy. Um, so I was trying to think of the potential vectors for this to infiltrate a network. So Matt was telling me about how he thinks that it would be possible to walk into many businesses and kind of just infect their printers because a lot of businesses have their printers on their public networks. Now, I, I know a lot of businesses do offer some public Wi-Fi. Like I know for sure Target usually does now. It's a new new initiative, but I somehow doubt that their printers are on their public Wi-Fi network. Somehow I only believe they're on their closed LAN. So I don't think that would be the case. Now, other things like, hmm, like the University of Minnesota where I go to school... I don't think that would be the case either, I think. You would probably just... You, you, I know you have to use your X500 to log into the University of Minnesota's uh, internet. And even if you uh, wanted to print something, you'd have to uh, make sure that you ha had the proper ID inserted into the print code and all sorts of crazy stuff. So it doesn't seem like this would be the easiest thing just to do if you're logged into a network... Uh, although the, the vector that I think of most is, hey, can you print this spreadsheet for me? But to do it, you need to download this program first, and then your printer melted. Hi. Uh, so something like that. It's some kind of like a email virus, I'm get, guessing. That would be the vector I would use if I was a spammer or a print burner. I don't know. I guess I don't hate books. So I'd, I'd leave that alone. Um, so last week we introduced this section for Q&A. And Q&A is a little section about um, question and answers. So normally people are asked to just, Hey, can you send us a question? And we asked that last week and we didn't really get such a wide response. So today, how about... Some answers. Why don't you send us some answers today? We want your answers, and we will ask the questions to those answers. This is completely backwards. It makes no sense. So we're going to try it. We're going to see how interesting it is. Now, after that, I have some thank yous. Now, currently, I'm sitting here alone in the, our new testing lab, and I have some pretty cool stuff nearby. Now, I'd like to thank Brian Reinhardt for an amazing donation. Absolutely incredible. I, 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 I can't express how grateful I am to have this here working and set up correctly. It's absolutely fantastic. I can't tell you what it is, what he gave us yet, because we're not ready to reveal the big secret, but I bet you can guess, and it's fantastic. Thank you. I'd also like to thank Ray Rampersad for his amazing contribution to our new testing quarters. Uh, our, our quarters are very solid now and well-made. Not necessarily well-painted, but well-made. And finally, the quarters themselves are donated by none other than Chris Rampersad. And the room is indeed fantastic now. So, I, I like to think that this week was a little slow in that 
you know, maybe next week will be a little better. Maybe uh, Black Friday shopping kind of killed the week. I don't know. Maybe uh, Cyber Monday kind of took it out on the news this week. Maybe everybody's too busy shopping to write stories. Could be a lot of different reasons. I don't know. One of the things I do know, though, is that earlier today, we tried to do this podcast, and we didn't have such good luck. So here I am, just a little later, and uh, it's turning out pretty well, uh, just experimenting so far. And, you know, I uh, I hope you guys enjoy this. This is uh, my first solo podcast. Uh, uh, in the future, I hope to have some guests and... Also, I'd like to also have Matt back as my co-host. I do like having him here. He's great. So, this is Ryan Rampersad, and of course, Matthew Petcho was not able to join us. Uh, That is the end of today's episode. Have a good one.